Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. My guest today is Rob Prugay, who is probably best known for his 15 years at the helm of the Asia-Pacific business of fund manager Lazard Asset Management, a role he left at the beginning of this year to hang up his boots as he called it. Before Rob joined Lazard, he spent time at pension fund SAS Trustees, amongst other roles. And at this pension fund he was part of the internal investment team. He witnessed firsthand how the pension fund decided to outsource its asset management functions as it felt it was doubling up on risk. Considering that many Australian pension funds are now moving towards in-house management, Rob has a unique view on this trend. We will also speak about Rob's efforts in reducing the stigma around mental health. He is the founder of People Reaching Out to People, or PROP, which has set up a short educational program that gives free guidance on how to interact with people who have potentially suicidal thoughts. For more information on this, please visit www.prop.org.au. All right, we're here with Rob Prugay. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Walter. Thank you for the invitation. Now, I thought uh, I did a bit of research and uh, I thought before we start, we need to uh, clear a few things up. Um, You had on your LinkedIn profile for, I think, quite some time that uh, amongst other things, you are a student of toga parties. What is that all about? (laughs) Well, I think you forgot the most important bit. I'm also a unicorn whisperer, which is also in my LinkedIn. But look, all jokes aside, um, I guess that what I was trying to convey was my personality. Yeah. Uh, all too often, LinkedIn is a glorified version of I work too hard and uh, people overselling themselves as opposed to avoiding who they actually are. And so my attempt into LinkedIn wasn't to, I guess, discredit any achievement or the help that I've received over the years, but rather to just say, I am me. I like to joke around. And while I love what I do, I also don't take things too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Most people will probably know you best from your, your 15 years with uh, Lazard as yeah. the CEO of the APEC region. Um, and you, a while ago, you basically sort of semi-retired and did a, a sabbatical yes. uh, trip. Yes. And 
I read a bit about what you were going to do in this trip. And yes. part of it is, I think you were doing uh, Santiago de Compostela, the pilgrim yes. route. Yes. Um, but then there was also something about volunteering at the Elephant Sanctuary in remote Western Thailand. Yes. And I was reading that and I thought, who is your travel printer and what have they been smoking? <laughs> well, I guess I'm very fortunate. I uh, grew up as a son of a diplomat, so... Uh, the travel bug was instilled in me from a very young age. And uh, finding the um, non-ordinary uh, is something that all my siblings and my parents have uh, uh, a gift in. And uh, I, I guess I wanted to do something that brings memories. Uh, of the many uh, things that I've learned from my father, uh, one of the best memories I have and it sounds better in Spanish, mind you, is the only thing we take to our graves are the songs we've danced and the places we've visited, okay. e.g. memories. Yes. And uh, it rhymes in Spanish, but I think it's very true. So um, whether it be now or five years ago, 10 years ago, I believe and I hope is something that I've instilled not just on my kids and my family, but as my father did with me. But more importantly, that I have an abundance of great memories. Yes. Well, it sounds like an excellent trip. Yeah, thank you. Um, if we look a bit at how you started in the investment industry, you have um, a number uh, of very varied roles uh, during the years. Yeah. But what, what got you sort of started? Well, I, I think to look back on that question, you have to remember that 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, uh, when I started, investment management wasn't a uh, darling child. I mean, a mother would have been very proud to say my son or my daughter is a doctor, a lawyer, or an architect and engineer. Uh, yes. Fund manager really wasn't up there. <laughs> um, and so I like to jokingly say, I got an investment management before greed was good so to speak. Right. Um, to me, that's never the case, of course. But what interests me, what always interests me is as a young boy, I loved puzzles. I loved books of uh, challenges of people, I guess, facing uh, challenges that others said that couldn't be broken. And what I loved about investment management is just that. It is a puzzle. It is one large puzzle. If it was really simple, then, of course, uh, excess returns, if you like, would be a freebie. They're not. Um, and for me, at least, uh, I was very fortunate that I had a rough idea what I wanted to do from a very young age, partially from the my own upbringing. Um, I guess you could say, in many ways, I'm the black sheep of my family. <laughs> if I look at my father and my siblings, many of them worked for the greater good. Uh, a brother with the UN, a brother, another brother that was a diplomat, uh, another brother that's a very gifted uh, baker. Um, and I, I'm proud of them all, of course. And yet I'm the one who sort of worked on Wall Street. Yeah. So it's very different, let alone from my own upbringing. But nonetheless, um, it's something that I really loved. And I was fortunate enough to go in it. And so from the university years, I have embarked on that. And then, of course, my master's in the UK. Um, when I finished my master's, um, I tried and I was hoping to find a job in London, 
but as a Peruvian U.S. passport holder, it was very difficult to get a visa, working visa, right. in the U.K. in those days. Yeah. So I had to return back to the U.S., and I found it really difficult to find a job, um, which, you know, was struggling, of course. And then my father said, never underestimate the power of working for the government, uh, because unlike Wall Street, you'll find that the government job is equally important and it's going to throw you in a deep end much more quickly. Mm. Uh, the government roles has no uh, time for hiring juniors to get their coffees and pick up their laundry. And so your internships and your um, young executive training that you'll be getting at the government uh, will actually uh, break um, you into what you want to do much more quickly. So after a five-year or three-year investment in the government, you'll find you've achieved more than had you gone to a junior executive program on Wall Street. And did you find that to be the case? Absolutely. Uh, so my first job was with the NASD uh, as a market surveillance analyst. And keep in mind, I started in July of 1987. Right. So my first three months of training was to prepare me for the October crash yeah. of 1987. Right, straight so into not, it. <laughs> I got straight into it. And not only that, uh, this was the days of Michael Milken, Boski, and others. And so these very famous insider trading, uh, so famous, in fact, that it was later made into a Wall Street movie. Sorry, a Hollywood movie called Wall Street. And so from a young age of what was then 23, there I was in the thick of it. Uh, not just a market major market correction where I could see the screen and prices dropping so precipitously, but equally uh, in the case of Boskis and uh, Michael Milken and whatever that we were involved in market manipulation. Mm. And to start a career, financial investment career in compliance, ironically, and perhaps maybe not too many people would think of that, is a great entry mm. because you understand the rules. Yeah. And more importantly, the rules are really important. And I remember talking to my boss, Bernie Thompson, and I said, wow, you know, we spend so much money on this. Um, is it really all worth it? How much money? Because we don't always win our cases. And he said to me, what's the price of integrity? Yeah. If the market isn't recognized as holding integrity, the value lost is significantly higher than the value that we spend on trying to protect it. Yep. I say that with humility because when I came to Australia, I was frankly aghast at how little we spend here. Right. In uh, my division alone, we had uh, 15 analysts. Yep. 15 analysts covering uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 15 for yeah. what small region? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, if I look back on Australian history of ASIC with the greatest amount of respect of what they're trying to do, sadly, I feel that the media placed too much emphasis of every case you must take in, they must win. Yes, right. And it's interesting as well when ASIC goes, quote unquote, after, end quote, uh, these people, they typically go after them when they're falling out of their halo. Right. Yeah. And they do that because there's no money for those people to protect themselves. Mm. If I can take you back to that start, I think starting your career with a major crisis in equity markets will give you a very different outlook as well when you 
get to the investment part because I can sort of think of the way that people have been looking at equities. And we, of course, had the crisis of 2009. Um, but sometimes people very quickly forget that these crises has happened and they think, oh, well, we'll get over it, allocate to equities. Can you tell me a little bit how it influenced your thinking starting off with, with such a crash? Oh, a, gr a great entry point for any aspiring analyst. And uh, I don't lose sight of that. It was a period where when we look back with the benefit of hindsight, we look at the correction in the form of numbers. Oh, it was a 10% correction. But when you were in that brew, uh, you remember that people weren't answering their phone calls. So even if you were a retail investor who wanted to sell, this is the days before internet broke in, mind you. Yeah. And you wanted to sell your shares because you were concerned. Chances are when you phoned your broker, they were not picking up the call. Right. Yes. So you were holding on to your stock as you were seeing it plummet yes. and you couldn't get out. Conversely, even if you wanted to play the brave contrarian game, you couldn't quite do it. It was a segregated market for, dare I say, the big boys. The only ones who were allowed to trade during these periods were the large players. And so what does that mean for the market structure? Because you can imagine that with people having more access to liquidity, even retail investors, that perhaps it's more difficult to make use of mispricings in the market? Well, mispricing or misinformation. Yes. Um, I think they're related, but the misinformation is the one that concerns me the most, whereby... Um, People extrapolate um, near-term history to assume those are long-term trends. And more, than, more often than not, this is where the danger comes for, quote-unquote, the informed investor. Um, the reality of investment is that information is not symmetrical. Mm. The reality of investment is that information is asymmetrical. And the more someone is able to dedicate their life to finding and uncovering that information, the asymmetry arises. So the professional investor, by definition, will always have a level of advantage of the retail investor or any other investor who has, quote-unquote, a day job yes. to go back to. And so it, to your point, is it really important? Sure, but it's a misinformation done by someone who extrapolates the wrong data series. Yeah. Yeah. If I can take you a bit further in your career and get to the time that you were with SAS trustees or, or, or State mm. Super. At that time, State Super managed assets internally. Mm -hmm. And we've seen sort of a, a, a cycle of in-house, external. Yeah. And now we are back to where a number of the large funds are basically bringing a lot of the asset management functions in-house again. How do you look at that? Do you think it's a, a cyclical activity or, or do you think they're making the right choice because of their size and, and the difficulty of getting capacity? Well, let me preface what I'm about to say by a simple fact, and that is I'm the poster child of internalization. Right. <laughs> When I came to Australia in 1989, uh, there were only three institutions doing international equities from Australia. I was hired by one. AMP. And then from AMP, I went to another organization which internally managed the funds, which of course was State Super. 
So my professional upbringing within superannuation was through internalization. So I have a natural bias towards it. But like everything, with a perspective. And the reality of internalization is that whilst it is cheaper from the front office, when you look at the totality of the cost, e.g. the back office and front office, the difference isn't that great. Secondly, fad investment is not only true in the retail world, it's true in the institutional world. When someone else is doing it and getting kudos for it, there will always be another person that says, hey, I can do that too. Why not? If they did it, I too can do it. The problem with that bit mm. is that they fail to grasp everything that was undertaken to get to that level. All they've seen is the finish line. Yeah. And they haven't necessarily seen the trek to which they've had to run to get to that finish line. For me, at the end of the day, it was a valuable lesson when uh, the then treasurer of New South Wales, Michael Egan, decided to sell state super or SAS trustees, as then we were called, uh, State Super Investment Management Corp or Axiom. Uh, that happened soon after the Bering scandal. If you remember, that was the period when Nick Leeson yes. um, did was a rogue trader in Singapore and basically bankrupt uh, the Queen's Bank. Yes. It was at that moment that Michael Egan, the treasurer, realized, hang on, I own the principal risk of the employee superannuation debt and the agent's risk as the manufacturer. And so my boss, uh, then boss at SSIMC, Elizabeth Bryan, and I had a conversation and we spoke to Keith Ambexier, yes, who's a very close friend of mine. I'm blessed to have, and I'm a, a keen follower of his writings. And uh, with others, he wrote a piece of the value add from internalizing funds. But uh, so we flew him out to Australia to meet with Michael Egan. And, you know, it, it's as simple as this. There is a savings to internalization. That's yes. very true. But it's like insurance. None of us ever get too upset when our house doesn't burn. Yes. <laughs> Yet we have home insurance. Yeah. And so when our house doesn't burn, do we then kick ourselves to say, damn, I shouldn't have insured this year? Yeah, yeah. Of course we don't. No. The, so I would argue that the cost savings of internalization, while valid, is also an agency risk that's being immunized through outsource. Mm -hmm. If someone from SSIMC had done a Nick Leeson or had breached their responsibilities, who owns that loss? The mm. taxpayer. Yes. Mm. Or the owner of the fund. Because that person is the employee of the fund. Whereas if it was an external fund manager, who owns that loss? The external fund manager. Yeah. Now, they may not get 100 cents on the dollar back, but it's better to get something than nothing. Yeah. And I mean, you give the example of Nick Leeson, which, which of course is very relevant, but that to a degree was on purpose. He, it was not a mistake that he made. But speaking to some of the asset owners here in Australia as well, is that that's another risk that they are worried about if they have an internal trading team and they make a mistake that very quickly can go into the millions of dollars that they will have to bear themselves rather than having them sitting with an external party. So that, that 
area of risk is is a very real one but again it's it's kind of hard to maybe put a price on without a doubt and uh, whether it's in, in an incentivized risk i.e where people manipulate for their own benefit or just an ordinary mistake is not really relevant because at the end of the day that cost is borne by someone and if you're the owner of the fund manager in this case uh, a super fund it's borne by the members secondly i think not many people have really considered the ramifications of internalization case in point typically the internal team reports to the cio so the cio all things considered is not incentivized but reviewed by how well the totality of the fund inclusive of course of the internal team okay how many superannuation funds do you know that do not have an asset consultant not many mm. so who does the asset consultant report to in, in the case where the fund has an internal team the cio is that necessarily the correct structure or should it be the chair yeah. but then if it's the chair the chair isn't necessarily with due respect investment savvy mm -hmm. so how quickly can they manage that so really at the end of the day each super fund with my in my humble opinion has to decide what is it you want to be yes being your neighbor is not a business plan yeah no that's 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 very true and i also wonder what drives these moves to internalization so we know for some of the large funds here in australia it's they basically say we can't place enough money um, with too many managers because otherwise we get index returns at a very high fee. Mm -hmm. So we need to find a solution to that mm -hmm. and either we don't allocate or we bring it internally and we get rid of some of those capacity problems. Do you think that's a valid argument, keeping in mind the risk to it? Newtonian physics, for every action there's a reaction. And if you have an internal team, by definition, you will have a unique set of skills and therefore risks that you're no longer diversifying against. Mm. So even if the liquidity risk is minimized, there may be style risk and investment risk that is heightened in order to reduce the liquidity risk. I'm a firm believer um, that there is no such thing as passive, right? particularly in investments, yeah. because you're either investing or you're not investing. You're either active or you're not active. But to get to either of those binary extremes, you just made an active decision. So some funds are saying, well, we're going to internalize through passive. Okay, great. What's the value add? To access passive funds right now, particularly if you're of size, it's next to zero. Hmm. So by internalizing, other than basically pounding your chest and saying, I am, we are a big fund and we have a large capacity, what value is it for the member? Yeah, yeah. I think actually I saw uh, an article last week that said the first index funds was launched at zero fees. Um, if I remember correctly, it was Fidelity, but that set of a, a new precedent that you can get an index fund without having to pay for it. As ironic as it sounds, there is a price war right now going on within passive funds. And the game that they are fighting is capacity. Um, you know, the manager with capacity will be the survivor. And so uh, they've realized this, and uh, Vanguard was very active in, if I can use that, pardon the pun, in that pricing strategy, <laughs> and others have followed along 
uh, in tune, and Fidelity is just following along a path that was already predestined by Vanguard. Yeah. If I look from your perspective as the CEO of a large fund management firm, one of the things that I often hear discussed as well is the people aspect to internalization. And with that, I mean, once you start working closely together with with a team, then it's harder to fire them or to replace them when it doesn't go so well. And apart from that, you also have suddenly a whole bunch of new personalities to manage. Sometimes they can be have quite big egos. How do you look at that from your years leading a fund management firm and, and sort of thinking back to those years where you were part of an internal team? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, the irony of uh, our industry is that inevitably people begin to believe their own BS. Yeah. Um, and they that's because they're surrounded by people who package uh, that into marketing documents. Um, that's the biggest uh, worry for any organization and therefore any uh, principal buying into that organization. Um, I once gave a, a speech... And uh, it go. It went along. The, I started the speech to a bunch of trustees and fund managers, and it went along the lines of, "I've lived a very fortunate life as a son of a diplomat. I've traveled the world. I then chose a career that has me traveling the world. And of all the beautiful places I've ever been to, not once have I come across a statue of a fund manager." No. <laughs> And uh, I, I guess this is my sort of, again, my usual joking way to bring light into something that um, even the greatest fund manager is right 55% of the time, Yeah. which means a great one gets it wrong 45% of the time. My old boss, Stephen Van Eyck, said to me, he said, the definition of a great fund manager is one who gets it right 55% of the time. The definition of one that you want to invest in are the ones that learn from the 45% of the time they get it wrong. Mm. And um, I found through my time at State Super and then later as an asset consultant is that you want to find managers who were bloodied three times. Three times. Mm. Because the first time they're bloodied, they blame the market. Ah, oh, well, you know, the market's irrational, doesn't really know what it's doing. It's wrong. Look at me. It's okay. You can be wrong for a long time, but you can be wrong and alone. Yes. Uh, the second um, time you're bloodied, inevitably they blame their peers or their environment or their work. Oh, they're not letting me do, the client's not letting me do what they want. The third time they're bloodied, they've come down to earth and they realize that they don't always get it right. And that's the manager you want, the one. And have you ever found that when you meet these great fund managers, they're almost conspiracy theorists? <laughs> Not they, it, that, yeah, <laughs> they, they're almost like I, there was a third gunman behind the tree. I know it. Or in this case, in investments, the market's trying to mess with me. It's so obviously cheap that it's trying to mess with me. There's something there that I'm missing. Right. That's the fund, that level of humility is what makes a good fund manager. And when um, we searched for fund managers in team liftouts or at state super in hiring that, you want to look at what is the support they have. 
You know, I have in my wallet still a newspaper clipping. Uh, one of our young PMs invested in Flight Center. And uh, at that time, you know, it was being bought out. And uh, the fund manager and the analysts did all the research and saying, well, Rob, why would we sell it cheaper than what it's worth? We bought it so cheap, and I grant you, it's higher, but it's still cheap, even at that cost. And not too surprisingly, that private equity fund that wants to buy Flight Center are themselves a value private equity fund. Right. And the press that was coming out of rear window was ludicrous, almost joking about the arrogance of that. And, uh, and I kept it. I cut it. Anyway, long story short, that stock not only rose well above the buyout price, but ultimately time had proved this PM correct. Mm. And the key to this statement is the internal support you have. And in this case, for the PM, the internal support was one, your research, your analysis sounds uh, valid. Let's go with it. There are other times, of course, where it's more challenging, where, yes, your research uh, is valid, but the market is clearly saying something. What are, we, what are you missing here in the case of resources? It proved to be correct, but we were early, like most fund, Valley Fund managers. And so that alone was a huge learning experience for our PMs, and it validated, um, validated excuse me, what they were doing. Uh, but there were some valuable lessons, and the lessons are only embraced if you are grounded from the point of humility to understand that I will get it wrong. Yeah. So when you build up the Lazard business in the APEC region, um, it started from a relatively small team. Did you look for those type of people that, that had a bit of experience with loss uh, behind them? Absolutely. But uh, let, me, let me take a step back. I jumped in the organization that already had it. Right. So it's not like um, it was a vacuum. The Aussie equity team, uh, Rob Osborne, Phil Hofflin, Warren Robertson, amongst others, um, they had that already. And so my coming on board with them um, was a marriage of um, philosophy. I shared what they were trying to do. And so the first thing that I did uh, was working with them and then seeing where our strengths, where our weaknesses and with a collegiate approach, uh, we collectively uh, rebuild the organization and our presence in Australia. And then for my sins, uh, I was then uh, promoted to uh, Asia, uh, where we had a small distribution office in Tokyo. So my family and I flew to Tokyo, and uh, we began to rebuild that. And using the internal resources of the organization of Lazard and liaising with other teams within Lazard, um, I was able to uh, work with people to bring them over and talk them into coming to Lazard. And the Japanese team uh, has done an incredible job from the start of zero, initially with hedge funds and then with long only. And uh, under the leadership of Tim Griffin, uh, they've built a really good platform. And then from there, we did the same thing in Korea. And then from there, we did the same thing in Hong Kong, Singapore, and of course, broader Asia. But in each case, it would be wrong to presuppose that it was uh, an initiative by Rob Perge, but rather my finding people within the organization 
that allowed me to then build on. Yeah. So we talked a little bit, little bit about the risks of internalization. We talked about the, the, the people aspect of it. So do you think that internalization is just too risky? Should you never do it under any circumstances? No. I think in some cases it makes a lot of sense. Uh, only after you can answer a simple question, why? Mm -hmm. If you can answer that question, why, to your members, to your board, to your regulator, and to your greatest cynic, then by all means, please proceed. Yeah. And there are some groups that do it very well. I want to be clear. There are some groups within uh, the superannuation world, not just here in Australia, but elsewhere, who do it very well. But just like all organizations in fund managers, not every fund manager that you can choose from does it well. Well, guess what? Not every superannuation will also do it well in the internalization uh, component. Yeah, potentially we're going to see more of this because um, the regulator here in Australia is pushing for funds to merge. It wants to get rid of some of the smaller funds. And with that, you get more scale and potentially more insourcing. Now, you earlier in your career worked for a regulator as well. Do, do you think that that's a sensible route to go? Is, is that the role of the regulator to say, no, hey guys? No, of course not. Uh, that's not the role of regu that might be the role of the policymaker, but it's not the role of the regulator. Uh, the regulator's role is what are the rules that we need to work in, and are they being embraced? And I think in this case they're taking that. Well, I know what's best, and therefore you should go larger. Okay, if you go larger, what are the safeguards? If one small fund goes belly up, that's bad for those members. But if one mega fund goes bad, that's bad for the industry. Who owns, ultimately, therefore, who owns this risk? In many ways, you know, superinnovation is a joke. A joke. It is a joke. Because if we look back, if we put our hands on our heart, okay, and look at this not through the point of view of the industry that we work in, because I love it. I started this by saying I love what I do. But we look at why was superannuation created in the first place. It was to offset the social security risk and the burden on future generations. The reality is, is that it's grown so rapidly to two plus trillion dollars that it's become an industry in and of itself. Yes. It's no longer seen as an immunization mechanism, but now an industry itself. And that's fine. It's morphed. It's evolved. And therefore, we too need to evolve. The joke isn't that the industry or superannuation is a joke. It's a joke that we believe that we're we believe in industry funds. Industry funds no longer exist. I'm sorry to tell you, they don't. They're mutual societies. Right. And it, because they're mutual societies, because they're run like mutual societies, does the definition of board structure of a member, an employer, an employee make sense anymore? No, it doesn't. I know this may sound confrontational, and I know it may sound antagonistic. I don't mean to. What I'm trying to do is put my hand on my heart and say, where is this two-plus trillion-dollar industry today, and is this what it should look like? Mm. And I would argue, no. What should it look like? Well, you know, there's a great saying. Um, if you steal someone, someone's idea, it's called plagiarism. If you steal many people's idea, it's called research. So my research is that superannuation should be broken into three buckets. Mm -hmm. The first bucket is what I call the acronym SCHEME, 
spending the kids' inheritance. Right. We retire at 65. We're still active. We can still do much. So we want to either travel uh, Australia, travel the world, uh, go to the beach, enjoy our retirement years where we're spending money. No money is really coming in in the form of uh, salary, and we're spending our savings. And so from 65 to 85, our bones, our minds, and our bodies are able to enjoy retirement years. Then from, uh, because we're never going to fulfill superannuation, uh, no matter, even if we go up to 20%, is never going to be fully funded. That's the dark reality. So we at least should manage that by holding that. Then from 85 to 95, it should move into longevity insurance, where we have, it's like a life insurance, but if you live post 85, you get a payout on an annual basis. The cost of longevity insurance is reduced when you get rid of the tail. In this case, if you say from 85 to 95, it's a fixed period Mm -hmm. where you will get paid this sum of money. And then from 95 onwards, you're in essence, uh, refer back to, defer, excuse me, back to Social Security. Right. Because by then, reality is you're probably not going to be traveling. You're not going to be going up and down the ski slopes or traveling to Europe or driving in your caravan. The reality is you'll probably be at home. And the only times you really go out is to go to the bolo and the doctors. Yeah. Post 95. The doctors might uh, incur quite a heavy fee because I think most of the medical costs are spent towards the last five years. Absolutely. Um, 30%, 30%, uh, according to a U.S. study, 30% of our uh, cradle-to-grave healthcare is spent in the last year alone. Yeah, yeah. So, 15% in the last three months. So will you have enough then if you're still on social security? Of course security? we won't. And, yeah. and as we all know, medical uh, inflation rate is not CPI. It's CPI++. plus plus. Yet most uh, super funds want to immunize against CPI+. plus. So there is a mismatch there already. So it, it, I guess in my humble view, what makes sense is that the uh, by breaking pension savings into thirds from 65 to 85, superannuation DBDC, sorry, excuse me, DC, defined contribution, then 85 to 95, a longevity insurance, and then 95 onwards, Social Security. Yep, yep. If I can take you to a topic outside of investing, and you have uh, set up an organization that basically wants to raise awareness around mental health and suicide, an organization called People Reaching Out to People. Um, And in that, you not so much look at helping people with mental health issues, but you look at reducing the stigma around talking about it and about mental illnesses itself. Can you tell me a little bit about the organization and why you started it? Mm, Thank you. Um, People Reaching Out to People, or the acronym PROP, um, started as a result uh, back in 2015 of when I lost five friends to suicide. Five? Mm. Not all in Australia, not all in the industry, not all neighbors, whatever. But nonetheless, five friends. Those of us who have lost even one friend can relate when I say that after the loss uh, of someone due to suicide, the inevitable question that we ask ourselves is, could I have been a better friend? Could I have recognized it? Yeah. 
Uh, should I have recognized it? Could I have saved them? And on asking myself that question, Walter, I came to a really sad answer. And that is no. Mm-hmm. And my answer of no wasn't because I was apathetic or uncaring. Yep. My answer of no was because my knowledge of mental health was so limited that I didn't feel empowered enough to do something. It can be pretty scary as well. Yeah. What if you say the wrong thing? Yes. Um, what if uh, in an effort to help, you end up making it worse? And you know, that's a really scary conclusion to come to Yeah. when you lose one friend. But when you lose five, it's an even more scary result. And so I began to research and study. I said, this is not right. I know it's not right. I got to understand it. And maybe it's my background investment. When you don't understand something, you delve into it to understand it. Yep. In either case, I spent a good three to six months studying it, uh, which doesn't make me an expert. But in that short period of time, I learned that my biggest stumbling block was the stigma around mental health. It wasn't mental health itself. It was my perception of mental health was highly stigmatized. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I came to an epiphany that with an epiphany of saying, imagine if I was as engaged with mental health as I am with friends and family who are battling cancer. Imagine the difference we could make if we could connect. And you know, the the greatest stumbling block, Walter, in connecting with mental health is the stigma makes you feel unempowered. Yeah. It challenges you reaching out and being present because you're always second-guessing yourself. Yeah. And this challenge, might, I might add, is not only towards friends who are suffering from mental health, but their family. Talking to relatives of people who've lost loved ones to suicide, they too have said they've lost contacts with good friends because they know their friends don't know what to say. Yeah. Yeah, they're afraid that they're saying the wrong thing again. So in, in the program that you have set up, um, what, what are some of the, the key messages for people to take away if they do want to engage and they, they, they do want to reach out? Well, let me give you one of the, um, just one example of many and why I think we need to educate ourselves to unlearn the stigma. Mm-hmm. Because in that three-month process, that's what ultimately happened. It sounds counterintuitive. But if you know a friend who is battling with depression, it's perfectly acceptable and encouraged, in fact, to ask your friend or loved one, are you having suicidal thoughts? Mm, You can ask that straight out? Absolutely. Now, you raised your eyebrows. I raised my eyebrows, my shoulders, my hands. Are you sure about this? I said to the experts, absolutely. 
in my research, I also met survivors. Mm-hmm. And so I asked survivors who are now at the forefront of trying to uh, battle the stigma themselves with the society has on it. And um, they had a great answer. They said, you know what? I probably wouldn't have answered. Yeah. However, I would have remembered that you asked. Because you see, we know we have depression. We hate that we have depression. Yeah. But the fact that we have depression means that we're not thinking cognitively. And with the lack of cognitive thinking, I hate myself. I hate that I'm a burden on you. Mm. And so when I actually leap and do something towards suicide, I'm not only doing it for myself, I'm doing it because I love you and I don't want to be a burden to you anymore. Mm. Suicide is not doesn't reflect some sort of um, woeful uh, ego that's all about me or selfishness. Yep. Quite the opposite. It's a reflection of the pain that they feel themselves and therefore it must be offsetting to the people they love. And so they take it out on them. So the two things I learned that really stuck out is it would be wrong to presuppose if a friend has depression to not engage in a meaningful way. And two, it would also be wrong to suppose that if you did lose a friend towards suicide, that they were being selfish. Yeah, Quite the opposite. And then the third thing, which I think is really important, is the difference between empathy and sympathy. Mm-hmm. Sympathy is something you give. Empathy is something you share. And the process of engagement is not founded on sympathy. The person suffering from depression does not want to hear your views on how you can snap out of it. Yeah, yeah. They don't want to feel as though, okay, I will drop everything I'm doing and burden myself with your problems. Yeah. You have to disengage with that. Listen to me. I know what I'm saying. And I'm listening to you. Let me understand what you're saying. Yeah. I think it's for many people sort of an instinctive reaction to to want to solve the problem and find solutions. Men but, from Mars bullshit, right? <laughs> but sometimes it's better to just listen yeah. uh, to the person. True. Um, and I was thinking about as well in, in terms of the stigma that is still surrounding these issues. Um, so I was recently re- reading a book that said maybe we shouldn't think about these dichotomies of mentally ill and mentally healthy. Maybe we should more think about a spectrum where... Um, there are smaller issues, there are larger issues, and also over the course of one's life, you might enter uh, or engage also with some of these these problems. Um, do you think it could be helpful to reduce the stigma if we think and talk about it as more of a spectrum rather than um, that dichotomy? That is a very good question, Walter. I'm not sure I can answer that. Uh, what I can say is that mental illness is a fact of life and that one in five people suffer from it. And therefore, if one in five suffer from it, chances are you will either suffer from it yourself or a close one will. And so the question is not about a spec. in my humble opinion, it's not about a spectrum. It's about 
if someone comes with cancer, the advances in medical care has meant that not all cancer is uh, fatal. Mm-hmm. An increasing number of cancers are becoming less fatal. The same can be said about mental health, the way we're dealing with it. The same can be said. So I would suggest that it's not necessarily a situation of spectrum, but uh, a reality that it it happens to all of us, Mm. either directly or in our circle. And therefore to um, live in this antiquated belief that human interaction is uh, needs to be let's shake hands let's not hug because we can't hug we have to shake hands and things like that it, it's it's outdated yeah it's not the real world anymore yeah i also have a belief that typically the higher the iq a person may have the greater the risk that person may have to um uh towards certain um Autism, for example. The higher the EQ the person may have, Mm. the more they feel, then the greater the risk that person will also be challenged by some sort of mental illness because they feel more. Mm. And so the ones you, uh, and the ones you need to watch out for are those empaths, those people who are always present for you, those ones who engage more. Uh, for two reasons. One, because they feel more. And because they feel more and they have very high EQ, they're better able to mask it. Mm. Because they understand how to wear a mask. Yeah. How to cover it. Yeah. So that's where the surprise comes. These friends that we adore because of their strong EQ, because of their engagement, because of their empathy, are better apt at hiding yeah, their own mental struggles, mm. which is why even when we talk to just we gotta get it out of our nomenclature, these words of you know weakness and man up and all that other rubbish. Mm. The reality is mental health is a real is here, and the only way we can combat it is to engage it rather than to uh, compartmentalize it into a corner. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, uh, bringing it back to to sort of the the industry that we work in. I think um, that element of, you know, you can't hug, you have to shake hands and you have to be sort of a a very masculine sort of man that's maybe emphasized in this industry as well. And um, I think I told you I was uh, uh, last week at the funeral of a friend um, who was also in this industry and uh, was a really wonderful guy. he didn't die of suicide, but it's no secret that uh, part of his problems were related to mental health. And we were talking about it, and I spoke with uh, uh, Richard Brandwiner, who many of us uh, will know. And I asked him, um, do you think that in this industry that there's, there's also that problem that so many alpha males and we all have to be looking successful that brings a burden on people as well that work in this industry? And he sort of made a comment that... Uh, stuck with me because it's sort of in in terms of the investment world where he said, you know, there's really no positive alpha and alpha male. And even though it's sort of a play on words, I think it's an important thing to remember as well that there's an element of 
culture and, and culture within an industry that perhaps we could make changes to have more of these discussions and perhaps reach out to people earlier on. Do you think that that could potentially be a problem in this industry as well? Um, well, I, I think it's a problem. It's not necessarily one that's industry. I, I, if we look back, we humans, are um, one of our primal desires is we want to belong to a tribe. Yep. There's safety in a tribe. We're less vulnerable in a tribe. And so that desire to belong is true in all industries. Uh, another industry that where suicide is rampant, sadly, is agriculture. Right, yes, of course. And I would argue probably more rampant than our own. Yep. And that alpha desire um, transpires not just within the alpha of a tribe, but within the alpha of their family. Mm -hmm. And uh, in agriculture, we can control fertilizers. We can control pesticides. We can't control rain. We can't control weather. No. And uh, the feeling of failure, of I'm supposed to deliver, I'm supposed to be there for you, um, is, and I, not only that, I can't talk about it because I got to man up, um, is again where the education process comes in. And if you talk to most kids in school, um, I think our children are better place to discuss these issues than we were when we were their age. So this education process that I'm referring to is really to catch up to where they are. Yeah. Not to supersede them or become an expert. Yeah. Um, if I may plug prop, uh, we have a webpage. Yep. www.prop.org.au Within prop, we have a four- part education series four parts each part will take you no more than say 10 minutes to read so in total 40 minutes we're all time poor i yep. get that mm. but if you can dedicate 10 minutes per week you will receive an education material written by experts because i'm not the expert i'm informed but being informed does not make me an expert that's one thing investments taught me, investment research. But so I reached out to those who were experts, in this case, super friends. Yep. And my friend Margot and her team built an education platform that is accessible through prop.org.au. You sign up, you get it, you get informed, and that base will at least give you some feeling of empowerment. Some of the feedback that we've received thus far from members is amazing. Beyond my wildest expectations, whereby one said, um, thank me for the, wrote to me and said, thank me for this, but I've learned a lot. I would have made a lot of these mistakes that you forewarn about. I received the phone call two months later from the same person in tears mm -hmm. saying how their child was caught at school trying to uh, die through suicide. Wow. And she thanked me profusely because she said, having that base, my initial reaction is, what the hell are you doing to me? How can you do this to me? Yeah. That would have been my reaction. 
but I understood what you were saying about empathy, about feeling. And we have a long struggle ahead of us, but I'm starting from a better position. Thank you very much. The other thing about this educational series is we have a pay it forward. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the four part series, we ask each participant, if you found this of interest, please give us three names of friends and or family whom you feel would benefit from this coursework. Yeah. And so what Prop is trying to do using education is to unlearn the stigma. There are much better organized, resourced uh, groups, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Super Friends, Are You Okay, to educate, handle these situations. They are stretched as it is. Yeah. I would, it would be false of me to try to say, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. That would just be stupid ego. Mm -hmm. So rather, I'm there as a facilitator for them by focusing on education. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very important part. And I think also in today's society, you know, it's also important to get it to the uh, young kids as well. Um, so I was talking to my wife, who's a teacher uh, at a high school. And she feels very strongly that the whole social media and the constant being in contact with everybody is really to the detriment of, of the mental health of, of younger kids uh, because they can't get away from it all. They're always constantly feeling they're being scrutinized. Um, and so I think with what you're trying to do is, is, is really great because it helps people to take a step when they do recognize it and engage with them and, and hopefully you know, prevent some of what uh, is happening here. Um, once again, can you tell us where we can find Prop? Sure. Um, thank you, Walter. And, and uh, thank you all for listening. Um, if you get anything out of this, uh, I hope it's really something on the issue of uh, the mental, the stigma around mental health. And please uh, have a look at www.prop dot org dot au prop dot org dot au in there there's an icon for the education and uh it won't take much time but you'll be surprised um how it will help and more importantly if you are surprised and you found it of benefit uh by naming three others you too can be part of this revolution and I say this revolution because the stigma is so embedded, particularly in us in the, the generation of the 70s and 80s and 60s, whatever, who uh, were raised to have a belief of what strength and how strength was defined. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you very much for sharing this important message with us. And it was great to have you on the podcast. You're very kind, Walter. And thank you to all my friends at I3 for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.